Welcome, as always, everyone, for our Wednesday show with Dr. Kelly Victory. Uh, obviously, we've been away for a couple of weeks, and Dr. Kelly has been holding the fort down quite nicely. But uh, today we are joined by Dr. Ryan Cole. He is a pathologist. Uh, let me get the exact uh, specifics for you. He was a trained at Mayo Clinic. He did a subspecialty fellowship in dermatopathology. He also has a PhD in immunology and viral virology, currently CEO of Cold Diagnostics, an independent full-service medical laboratory organization. Dr. Cole has some interesting ideas, and we thought we would hear them out. And uh, Dr. Kelly has been talking about the kinds of things he's been observing for a long time. We also are out on Twitter Spaces. And of course, I, usually on Wednesday, we don't have, we're, Kelly and I are pretty busy talking to our guests. We may not have time to take any calls. But uh, if we do, and you raise your hand, I bring you up, you'll be streaming on multiple platforms. We're also watching you on Rumble and the Rumble Rants. And of course, uh, on the, the um, restream, we get to see all the chat going on there. So I'll keep an eye on that. Let's get right on with it. Our laws, as it pertain to substances, are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic. Because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin, ridiculous I'm a, I'm a doctor for <laughs> sake. Where the hell you think I learned that? I'm just saying. You go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. If you have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it. I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. As always, Dr. Kelly Victory will be in here with my guest and myself in a few minutes. Uh, Susan, everything good with you? Just perfect. Just perfect. All right. We are back from our trip. I don't think you've spoken to this audience. We did a couple of uh, earlier shows in the week, this uh, taking phone calls and whatnot, but we had a glorious time, but it's great to be back with you all. So let me get right to my guest. As I said, Dr. Ryan Cole, a pathologist, dermatopathologist, also immunology and virology training. Dr. Cole, welcome to the program. With you thank you so much oh no we and, don't uh, have there you are there i am your sound was out for a second yeah your sound was gone for a second we got you back all right i probably chimed in a second too early um great to be with mm -hmm. you thank you i've actually listened to you for many years when i was in med school i was building wooden canoe after you know post call third and fourth year and was listening to love lines so uh it's, it's an honor to to talk with you i want to just throw real quick before i get any more grief i don't have a phd i did phd work and then we had our first baby on the way and so i didn't finish the the phd i didn't need to be a doctor doctor I had to feed the kids instead so I have my md did work and so uh, just just for the record thanks 
I'm glad you said it straight. It's perfect. But uh, in terms of uh, your post-call uh, nights listening to Loveline, um, the only strange part is the wood canoe part of the story. What, what were you doing? What? You know, Where were you? Were you, were you up in northern Canada or something and trying to exp- break in the ice to go? F- what was happening? You know, in Minnesota, I took that wood canoe up to those north woods ah. many a time. Uh, but it, it was kind of, I call it sawdust therapy. You know, post-call, you've got to do something creative and unwind. And so it was, you know, I, I, I love doing wood art and creating. And so that life and death by day and a little little art to balance life by night. Yes, I think we all understand what you're talking about. So uh, speaking of uh, life and death, let's talk a little bit about, uh, where, I'm not sure where we should start this conversation. I, I think what I'd like to ask is, you know, there, there's sort of a couple ways to proceed here. One is the excesses and the extraordinary incompetence and missteps uh, on the behalf of our public health organization and the extraordinary um, authority they were granted with uh, fiat control over the entire populace with no requirement to defend what they had done. We're now understanding sort of where some of this came from and most of it, frankly, from the Chinese Communist Party. And it was a completely fallacious way to go about uh, fighting a pandemic, but okay, mistakes were made. So we could go that way, or we could start to talk about the the vaccines and your concerns about the vaccines. And if if we start with the vaccines, I'd be curious to know what what's on your mind today. We'll get in, we'll work our way through all your concerns. So I, I agree in terms of public health uh, policy and philosophy and what's happened. It it has been a public health disaster, unfortunately. And I, I do serve now on our central district health board as a public health official. When I saw what was going wrong, I thought, wait a minute, I need to get involved. And went ahead and ran for that board position and thankfully um, was appointed there and, and I'm trying to have a, a more logical influence in the community. But, you know, going to the second question, I think my concern today is we're still seeing a big public push for an injection that's still essentially experimental and has uh, side effects and even technically more so is not designed for the variants that are becoming dominant. And it will unfortunately never be able to keep up. This is the one thing I did learn in my PhD work in virology. Coronaviruses always mutate. And if you look at the history of SARS-CoV-1, MERS-CoV-1, there was a good reason we never successfully developed a vaccine against those. And that was the nature of the family of viruses. And I like to compare this to HIV. You know, Dr. Fauci's holy grail of vaccine, an HIV vaccine, well, there's a reason 40 years later we still don't have an HIV vaccine. Similarly to coronaviruses, HIV has a spike protein of different proteins, but same same basic construct. And over time, that continues to mutate ahead of any vaccinal efforts. So with what we are trying to do to keep up with variants is a biologic and uh, evolutionarily uh, insane construct. It just doesn't make sense to be doing what we're doing. And so that's my big concern right now. We're pushing something that is has risks to it, and certainly there are claims that there are, are great benefits. However, do the risks outweigh the benefit in which age categories? You know, in, in my medical opinion, we've got to assess all of those things. And in a healthy, robust population at essentially zero risk for the virus, we're pushing something that can 
cause more harm than good. And I can, and I know we'll go into some of the science details. Yeah, well, let's let's go there. Let, let, yeah, let's go there because that, first of all, it just um, I have to ask the question: Do you have any theory why? I, I, Kelly and I have spoke to a lot of different people, and the the kind of predominant theory that comes down is that there's an excessively cozy relationship between uh, the governmental regulatory agencies and the and big pharma. Not that there's somebody twirling their mustache with a big bag of cash. It's just that these people move from regulatory positions to executive positions at the at the drug companies, and it's just uh, it's almost a shared culture, and they don't question each other maybe the way they should. Whatever it is, it, it feels like that might be the the reason that things are uh, proceeding the way they have. But I still, even with that being the case, don't understand why this is the only vaccine I can think of that doesn't have either risk populations or age age constraints uh, over to over generally speaking less within the construct of the FDA I mean look at the HPV vaccine I mean it's what is it now 9 to 46 or something but you could give it to a 75 year old I mean you could do it I understand that but in terms of pushing it on a 75 year old that's an entirely different matter it literally is the same as me pushing a yellow fever vaccine on you even though you have no plans to travel to endemic areas. I, what, what do we think that is? Why, why that? It's so confusing. Yeah, don't worry. Uncle Sam gave me that one when I was at the Air Force Academy many years ago. <laughs> but uh, So I did get the yellow fever shot, and it was miserable. Um, yeah. Why is that? that? That's a good question, I, I, and I agree with you. Um, all scientists agree when you censor the ones who don't. And that's the unfortunate aspect of this. There have been financial interests. There is a coziness between regulatory agencies and big pharmaceutical companies. And it was obviously a boondoggle for these companies. But going back to the basic science, um, even if this had been a traditional protein vaccine, the SARS-CoV-1 protein vaccine, it induced an immune response, antibody response, et cetera. However, down the road in studies, it became let's say an enemy to the immune system because the immune system was blinded to future variations. So this is what we call immune imprinting. And it basically said to the virus, okay, focus on this spike protein, focus on this. And when along comes another, you end up with uh, immunologic problems. And we knew that in mammal models with, with other viruses. It, it was fascinating that Borla in the Washington Post interview, CEO Pfizer said to his scientists, why are we doing mRNA? We've only been working on this for two and a half years. So he had questions and his scientists just said, well, it's because we're doing this and that's our plan. And it was also interesting that Moderna hadn't successfully brought an mRNA product to the human market prior to this. Their animal studies with different toxicities and different autoimmune effects, et cetera, with mRNA technologies didn't work either. So, so it is... You know, that's the million dollar question. Why did we push forward with something? Why did we not age stratify? And why did we treat these products as though they were, quote, vaccines when they're indeed a, an injection of a gene sequence and didn't go through the regulatory necessary processes to authorize something that's a gene based product? I mean, that's a very strict criteria in the FDA. And I was on with Dr. Weissman last night on a call and a couple other colleagues around the country. 
And we were discussing this. If you look at the handful of gene-based products that are FDA approved, the rigor through which those things uh, go for approval is five, six, 10 years, and then with very stringent follow-up requirements. So all of those rules and that regulatory process that should have happened was set aside. They didn't do gene mutation studies. They didn't do cancer cytotoxicity potential studies, reproductive toxicity studies, uh, weight-based analyses, and then the long-term follow-up. We're in the middle of it right now. We're in the short term. The long term is yet to be seen. And I hope for the best, but as a scientist and observer of data and observer of patterns and observer of cells, I have to say what I'm seeing. And what I'm seeing are some adverse effects that are highly concerning, not only for now, but the immune modulation that we're seeing going forward uh, has me concerned as well. So I don't mean to sound alarmist. I'm just a scientist. My job as a pathologist is to be the quality control of medicine. You know, some people think, oh, pathologist, Quincy, autopsy. Sure, I review autopsy tissues. But all day long, I'm looking through this microscope at pieces of people. I'm reviewing blood studies, et cetera. And just like, you know, you're traveling for the holidays recently, you hear in the airports all the time, if you see something, say something. Well, that's the job of a pathologist is observe patterns within you know, their community, within their populations. And if something is different, be it an infectious disease outbreak when we're seeing something new grow in the microbiology lab, or if we're seeing an outbreak of a certain type of cancer, et cetera, these things need to be mentioned and reported because now you test the hypothesis against other regions and other labs, and you bring it to the public health agencies and say, we've got a change in pattern. And so in pathology, that's what we are supposed to do. And so obviously I've been lambasted for trying to share science. And at the end of the day, I always say to my colleagues, look, anything I, I do share or say, question me, please, let's have dialogue. And if you have better data sets than I do, great. I'm here to learn as well. I'm not here to expound, you know, ex cathedra pronouncements that what I say is the only thing. But when I do see something and it's concerning, that's why I'm pointing out the harms of the spike protein, the harms of these gene-based injections, the lipid nanoparticle in, a, in and of itself is toxic. And here's probably even a graver concern I have. So we've experimentally used a lipid nanoparticle plus uh, a gene sequence for these injections. And the Wuhan uh, spike that is on, is coded for within this gene that you know our cells are taught to make this foreign protein, the human body cells weren't made to make foreign proteins. That sequence is extinct in humanity, went extinct uh, over a year and a half ago. The BA4 and the BA5 in the bi slash trivalent shots is now also uh, on the wane and almost extinct. So we have extinct variants and the lipid nanoparticle goes anywhere and everywhere in the body. It was originally designed for carrying chemotherapeutic agents across the blood-brain barrier and were carrying uh, genes for rare genetic conditions. So the lipid nanoparticle going everywhere is a, a dangerous construct in the sense you can't control where it goes. So now the companies say, well, we have an RSV and an influenza shot in, in development and HIV and, and TB and 15, 20, 30 others in the pipeline. And they're acting as though they have regulatory carte blanche to move forward with a technology with known risks and harms, excess harms that I know, you know Ed Dowd uh, brought up some of the, the concerning statistical data with you the other week. 
with with known harms and now they think they can use this platform and it hasn't gone through the proper regulatory processes and that's what's super alarming for me right now okay sure we've experimented with these injections but they're acting as though they have permission to go forward with other injections and again the human cell is made to make human proteins to make a human cell make a protein from an infectious agent and especially make a protein which has known cytotoxicity, cellular toxicity, human body toxicity, that's that's a big scientific concern. Are there other pathologists that are, now that it seems like some of the um, silencing of our peers has lo- loosened a little bit and people are able to say things out loud that they couldn't say a year ago. Are you finding other like-minded pathologists? Not as much as I would like to. It's similar to a lot of medicine and a lot of specialties. There's about 10% who are saying, hey, uh, we don't think this shot is for everybody. There's probably about 25 to 30% that are like, okay, we're seeing the problems. A lot of people are, I think, in fear because they're stuck within large systems. Uh, Other pathologists Mm. around the world, yes, I have colleagues in Germany. Some of the slides I will share are from uh, one of my colleagues there from meeting with him when I was over in Vienna a couple months ago. And here stateside, yeah, I do have many colleagues that have approached me at meetings that are pathologists and say, hey, thanks for speaking up. I'm seeing what you're seeing, but if I say it, I will lose my job. I'm independent Mm. and I've lost just about everything um, in terms of my finances, career, business for simply sharing science. Well, I, I assume the slides are when you say the things you're observing, you're going to tell us that in, this, in the slides you brought us. So why don't we yes. take a little break and uh, we'll let you show the findings and then uh, give Kelly a crack at you. So we'll be right back after this. Thanks. I have some pretty exciting news. Our favorite skincare brand, Genucel, is having a holiday preview sale. It just went live for all the products that Susan and I love. Genucel Silky Smooth XV Moisturizer soaks right into my skin instantly. And with its immediate effects, you can see the fine lines and wrinkles disappearing within 12 hours. And Susan loves, of course, the Genucel Vitamin C Serum infused with the purest vitamin C that absorbs to the deepest layers of the skin because of their proprietary skincare technology. I am a snob when it comes to using products on my face. The dermatologist makes a ton of money from me. But when I was introduced to Genucel, I was so happy because it's so affordable and it works great. I was introduced to the Ultra Retinol Cream, which I love at night. All the eye creams are amazing. People notice my skin all the time, and I'm so excited because it's actually working. And for a limited time, take advantage of the Genucel Holiday Preview Sale and save up to 60% off our favorite Genucel products. 60% off. Treat yourself this holiday season. Go to genucel.com slash Drew. That's genucel.com slash Drew, G-E-N-U-C-E-L dot com slash Drew. My guest is Philip Patrick. He is a precious metal specialist, trains at University of Redlands. He has spent years as a wealth manager at Citigroup, and his current position is with Birch Gold Group. So gold has always been uh, somewhat of a safe haven, particularly in times of great turmoil, Uh, much like our present moment, I imagine. Gold has always traditionally been a safe haven asset. Gold specifically has has always been about wealth preservation, right? Gold has 
it always held its buying power. You can look at as far back as you'd like in history. In biblical times, one ounce of gold would buy somebody 400 loaves of bread. And today it does the same thing. So it's a store of value. But I would say in times like this, as you mentioned, it's particularly important when you're dealing with things like 40-year high inflation, uh, you know, the air that's coming out of a stock market bubble. These times in particular tend to drive gold and silver up quite significantly. If things are different, the solution needs to be different as well. So I encourage everyone to get informed. And we have a lot of good information here to help your listeners. Just a reminder, I am not a financial advisor and I do not give out financial advice nor investing advice. Birch Gold has an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, countless five-star reviews, and thousands of satisfied customers. Check them out now. Visit birchgold.com slash Drew and secure your future with gold. Do it now. The parallel economy has empowered us to care for our health, well-being, as well as longevity. Likewise, for us pet parents who now have a place to go when it comes to keeping the family dogs, cats, even horses in the best shape possible. As a dog dad, I'm thrilled to be working with Pet Club 24-7, a company founded by two guys who lost dogs to serious conditions, including cancer. Pet Club 24-7 has an incredible array of products, including a line of supplements for humans, such as the Inforce Plus Corollius Versicolor and Inforce Corollius Versicolor with Reishi. My friend and colleague, Christina Ferrari, a cancer survivor herself, swears by it. When I was diagnosed, the doctor in the emergency room told me, you have two years to live. Oh boy. Along with the stem cell, I took these. I have been in remission for eight years now. For dogs, mush puppy treats are a fan favorite. Rex, oh boy. Oh, he came right. Oh, there he is. They are also made with the Coriolis versicolor mushroom, which supports their immune system, according to hundreds of clinical studies. Here's Kristen Ludlow, National Vice President. That strain does matter. We do have the most potent strain, and we also extract it in a proprietary way. And that's why we've been having such wonderful experiences with these products. Mush puppies are made here in the U.S. There are no fillers. It's non-addicting. Your dog can't accidentally overdose. Go to drdrew.com slash petclub247 for a discount off the list price. That is drdrew.com. P-E-T-C-L-U-B-247, Pet Club 247. Some platforms have banned the discussion of controversial topics. If this episode ends here, the rest of the show is available at drdrew.tv. There's nothing in medicine that doesn't boil down to a risk-benefit calculation. It is the mandate public health to consider the impact of any particular mitigation scheme on the entire population. This is uncharted territory, Drew. And of course, welcome Dr. Kelly Victory. When I hear those words now, I think about what's going on in China and I just, that's the, that's the, uh, the yeah. furtherance of the policy that we were establishing here in this country. How do you all like it now? Anyway. Exactly. So, uh, Kelly, Can I say something really quick? Yeah. Also, we're trying to reinstate Dr. Kelly on Twitter. That's true. And we, we made an appeal to Elon Musk today, and we're getting some traction over there. So um, go over to Dr. Drew's Twitter and retweet and tell a friend. And uh, tag Musk. Yeah. Right. Please. All right, Dr. I, Kelly Victory, have at it. I, I appreciate it. Uh, welcome, Ryan. Thank you so much for joining us. I've really been looking forward to this conversation. I think it's fair to say that COVID is what threw the two of us into the same circle. Uh, for the better part of the past two years, 
you and I have been immersed in the same group of scientists and uh, singing really largely from the same song sheet, uh, truth telling. And uh, unfortunately, both of us have suffered the slings and arrows uh, as a result of it. Uh, but I applaud you for your honesty and your courage. Um, I want to get into a little bit. You were the first person who I knew when we were talking about potential adverse events as a result of the, the vaccines, people started talking the very first thing, well before people were talking myocarditis or autoimmune issues, it was the clotting issue. Clots were the first thing that people talked about. And you were the first person that I knew who was taking this from the clinical level of we're seeing people with heart attacks, strokes, blood clots to the lung, blood clots to the extremity. And because of your really uh, unique purview as a pathologist and the one actually looking at the slides, looking at the autopsies or whatever, we're the person who got into the weeds on these clots. Let's start, and I'm going to lead you through in, in my 45 minutes that I've got with you, a number of different sort of categories of adverse uh, events that are potentially are, are associated with these vaccines. But let's start with clots and go from there. Talk a little bit about the clots, what you are seeing, what they're made of, uh, and whatever else you want to cover. Uh, thank you, Kelly, and it's an honor to be with you. And thank you for all you do. Um, yeah, let's. Uh, we can start with the clots and and you know the spike protein in and of itself. And I, I think it's fair to mention. Look, COVID itself was a clotting disease, and so what part of COVID was causing that clotting? The spike protein. And sorry, I'm bouncing a bit there. I'm just getting my slide up. So so. The spike protein, interestingly, and I will give Dr. Pretorius in South Africa a lot of credit for her work in terms of some of the me mechanisms of clotting and the composition of these clots. So here, you know, this is what the body's doing. We're taking a gene out of the, the virus, putting it into the spike, or, or putting, putting it uh, that gene, I'm sorry, into a lipid nanoparticle, putting that into the vial, putting it into the arm, and then putting it into our bodies and then our bodies become a spike protein factory and supposedly you know we're supposed to make antibodies and immune response so um, we'll look at the next slide here um if caleb wants to jump one slide forward so here you see an, an, a superimposition of a needle on top of a, a muscle and you see in the middle of that little circle that's a vessel and we we're told oh you get a shot it stays in your arm you're fine but you see below that's a little torn apart vessel and then on the right-hand side, this is a technique we use in the laboratory called immunohistochemistry. So, you know, people can say, well, gosh, you know, what, what, why isn't everybody doing this? Well, that's my question, because here's a list of countless vendors of this stain, this ability to do this testing in any and every laboratory in the world. And why aren't my colleagues doing it? Where, where's the billions of dollars for research at the universities looking at every sudden death, every clot, every unusual scenario with both COVID, post-vaccine, et cetera? The billions have gone to the NFL, to other people to advertise, to get a shot, get a shot, get a shot, but the research should be done. So here on, in this picture on the right, all those brown dots, that's this technique. We can tag specific proteins uh, in, in the body and in biology. So those brown dots are in the muscle and yeah, those muscle cells are making spike protein. However, let's go forward a slide. You hear a lot about myocarditis. 
On the left, that's normal heart muscle. On the right, all those blue dots, that's inflammation that doesn't belong in the heart. Let's go to the next slide and see why. And I'll get to these clots. Don't worry, Kelly, I'm getting there. I'm just building up no, to it. No, no worries, no, no worries. I'll take five minutes and go through this and then you can just pick my brain. So on, on the left here, um, that's heart muscle tissue. And see all that brown? That is all spike protein. The lipid nanoparticle, as I was mentioning to Dr. Drew, goes everywhere. It goes everywhere. It can land anywhere in the human body, any organ, bone, uh, bone marrow, spleen, brain, heart, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So what do we do as a control? People will criticize and say, well, how can you prove that's not the virus? Well, on the right-hand side, the virus has lots of proteins, and the nucleocapsid that encases the mRNA is a specific protein. We stain for that as well as a control. If it were a viral infection, we would see both of those stains positive. Post-vaccinally, we see only the spike protein. So this is heart muscle. That's highly concerning. Does a foreign virus belong in heart muscle? No. Does the toxic protein from an injection our cells are making belong in our heart muscle? No. So sudden deaths, here's one explanation. Let's go on to uh, the next slide. I uh, know many of us uh, have heard about Dr. Mulhotra now, a brilliant cardiologist from the United Kingdom. I've had the pleasure of meeting him. His father, unfortunately, passed away um, after an, an, one of these injections. He had a clean bill of cardiac health, and then after the shot, ended up with uh, cardiac blockage, cardiac vessel blockage. Well, here, the red, this is what I look at all day, different uh, slides like this. All the blue dots in that red, that's hemorrhage and inflammation in a coronary artery vessel wall. The paler background, what you see there is spike protein stain, again, in the laboratory, showing that these vessel walls are packed with production of spike protein. And a concern I have is when does the body, after this gene goes into our cells, when does the body stop making the spike protein? That is a scientific question that hasn't been answered yet. Let's go on to the next one, please. Okay, here, this is a recent report by Dr. Mortz um, out of Germany, a case report. And this is to the point that lipid nanoparticles were designed to carry agents to the neural tissues. The blood-brain barrier is very sacred, and it prevents many things from getting into it to keep our neurons firing and safe. Well, this Parkinson's patient, deceased, uh, you can see, again, all those dots on that little tube on the left, that's a blood vessel. That's all spike protein. And on the right, you can see spilling out from a vessel all the little dots, that spike protein within the neural tissues. Next one, please. And in this next one, again, this is another autopsy case. And this is spike protein just dotted and spread throughout uh, the neural tissues. It induces inflammation. And wherever it lands, it's okay, going can to I, induce... Can I ask a couple quick questions? I, I don't want to interrupt too much here, but... But but what where exactly is that is that in myelin being produced or is that in neurons? Where what are we looking? I for me as a non-pathologist to localize that. Yeah, no, it's in white matter and gray matter. So wherever the capillary vessel is, uh, the so spike it, protein. Okay, will is it? So let, let me just make sure I get your theory correct. So it's primarily being reproduced in endothelium. And then leaking out into the surrounding tissue is that is that correct? And so it's so it's really the why is the endothelium so prone to the production of the spike protein? We know that. Uh, well, the endothelium is a replete in ACE two receptors. Uh, the okay. the production okay. site 
Uh, so the spike will preferen preferentially bind both to the ACE2 receptor on the endothelium, but there's another very important one, and, and this is what we'll talk about in the clotting, called the CD147 receptor. And that right. protein we have on the surface of red cells, white cells, endothelium, platelets, and that spike preferentially binds to that. Now, I won't tell you about a drug that shall not be named that displaces that spike from that receptor, but there are medications that do displace the spike from those. But and, yes, and, so- And let me just, before you keep going, one last quickie, which is do, how how does the, you're looking, we're looking at post-vaccine cases. Do, what do we, if we looked at post-COVID cases or even active COVID cases, is there any similarity? Yes, there is. Um, so NIH did a, one of their rare studies on a series of autopsies and patients that were immune suppressed were replicating virus. And they did both that uh, uh, spike and nucleocapsid stain. And they showed that the virus uh, did get into many parts of the body and replicated for a good period of, of time. So there are comparators to post-COVID um, deaths okay. and, and okay. autopsies compared to post-vaccinal. Okay. But but if we but if we summarize so far, and I'm going to part of my job is to make sure that we don't get so far into the technical weeds to lose uh, those folks who who don't have uh, science backgrounds. But so so far we said we knew that COVID uh, was was associated with this spike protein that by itself is toxic. It is what caused mm -hmm. clots in those people who contracted COVID and had clots. They develop a vaccine that induces you to produce those precise toxic spike proteins and with no off switch. Unlike when you get the virus and you will eliminate it with the vaccine, you now have the genetic roadmap or instruction manual to make these in perpetuity, perhaps. We don't know for how long because those studies were never done. So when you get vaccinated, okay. you now are going to produce the, the toxic spikes and furthermore, they're going to be produced in essentially every organ system in the body, despite what we were told. They won't stay in the deltoid. Furthermore, because of the nature of the stains that you used that were available, you were able to determine the difference between spike proteins that occurred from the virus versus spike proteins that occurred from the vaccine. And to differentiate right. that, okay. So, so far, you now have become, if you're vaccinated, you're now a little factory producing gobs of toxic proteins in every organ system in the body. Go from there. And, okay, and I want to clarify to just take some fear away from some individuals. The vector with the J&J &J and the AstraZeneca is an adenoviral vector, and, and you're starting with complementary DNA, not an mRNA. And so right. because of that, you don't get the breakdown. You get... You, it produces a high amount of spike for a set period of time. We know from the 1980s, 90s, that gene-based studies with adenoviral vectors caused a lot of clotting. So there were clotting problems with that one for sure, and some antibodies in the blood that uh, also induce clotting, platelet factor four, antiphospholipid antibodies, other things in the body that will induce clotting from that vector, but you don't get the replication for the same period of time with mRNA vaccines. Right. So, uh, yeah, so- I had, I had, a, I had a, uh, some sort of, I don't know if it was thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura or what. I, I had uh, all the signs of a transverse sinus thrombosis. I woke up with a raccoon's eye and was sick as hell. I saw that. And uh, made it through, made it through. But but that that's yep. what you're talking about. So that, there it is. There's my raccoon eye. Yeah. So, right, go, so, so keep going, Dr. Move, Cole. Move us forward. Yeah. 
Yeah, we'll, yes. we'll move forward real quickly here, and I, I won't be too nerdy. I'll try to be a little more layman's here. So uh, if we uh, jump onto the, yeah, there we go. So it's in the brain tissue. Dr. Drew had a, a great question. Is it in the, is it in the gray matter? Is it in the white matter? Where, where in the brain? Wherever the lipid nanoparticle distributes, and it does get through the blood-brain barrier, and we know S1, the spike gets through as well. So it'll follow the small capillaries and leak into whatever tissue it, it wants to. Okay, next slide, please. Now, this is the aorta. This is something that's unusual. Usually, you'll see this in genetic conditions where the aorta ruptures. And you can see on the top, that's the, the autopsy tissue. On the bottom, all those dots, that's inflammation. On the right, that's spike protein, literally causing the lymphocytes to chew a hole in the aorta. This is the biggest blood vessel in your body coming off your heart. When that ruptures, you're gone in minutes. So, that's just another example of what deposited spike protein and the induced inflammation can do. So uh, next, please. This is just an example of how prolific the spike can become uh, once it lands in a tissue. So that big circle in the middle is an artery inside your spleen. And all those brown dots and all those uh, splenic cells, that's a lot of spike protein. And so we know the spike can circulate in the body for a long time. Traditionally, in vaccine injury from other shots, they say most injury occurs within two weeks. However, with these gene-based injections, the spike is persisting for a long time, and it's produced in large quantity. Dr. Ogata at Harvard showed it was circulating for a month. Uh, Dr. Bonsall in the Journal of Immunology showed it was circulating in exosomes in the blood for up to four months. So we have spike protein persisting in the human body for a long time. Now, in some immune suppressed patients, virus persists for a long time as well. So I'm not, I'm not throwing one or the other under the bus. I'm just saying this is a scientific observation. So going on to the next one, um, this is what's concerning. Okay, so this is a, a lymphoma, a cancer of the lymphoid cells within the stomach lining. Now let's look at the next slide. All of those B cells are stuffed with spike protein. The spike protein binds to a gene in our body that's called the guardian of the genome, the P53 tumor suppressor gene. We know from in silico studies that the spike will bind there. It also binds to a breast cancer gene known as BRCA and ovarian cancer gene known as BRCA. What does that mean? Well, I've made the observation that there's an, an uptick of some unusual cancers that I've been seeing. But this, I think, is it, this should just at least open the door to other pathologists and universities to say, well, we should maybe go back and look at some of these unusual fast spreading cancers in young patients that we normally don't see. Is there spike protein? Is it binding to that receptor? Why is the body doing things that we haven't seen on a population level before? So, again, I'm just putting it out there. These are things that are scientific, have been observed. These are observations, these are scientific methods. Others need to continue to repeat these. Okay, and let me forward. let me interject here with if I can interject for a second here with regard to these cancers, uh, Dr. Cole, you are certainly not the only one seeing these. There's been a significant increase in new onset cancers, particularly in young people, and a resurgence of cancers that had been deemed in remission. Um, there was just a letter, a very compelling letter, written to the British Medical Journal by a well-known British oncologist. Um, and named Angus uh, uh, Dalglish, uh, who wrote that he said, please stop these. We are seeing 
this massive uptick in colorectal cancers and in 44 other classes of cancers, particularly in young people. So we need some explanation. And while you and I cannot say with surety, as we sit here today, that these are a direct result of COVID vaccination, we certainly are obligated, I think, to have that robust, vigorous debate. And somebody sure as heck should be investigating these and saying what's causing it, because uh, the things you are bringing up with regard to uh, the the binding of the spikes to these different uh, receptors on, on certain well-known means. One of the great advances in cancer was our ability to define receptors and therefore have targeted therapy. A receptor for breast cancer, a receptor for colorectal cancer, a receptor you know, for ovarian cancer. And now we have spike proteins that are binding to specific receptors and allowing tumors to grow uh, unimpeded. And, and that's the important thing is there's there's at least a dozen mechanisms that the spike can uh, induce in those in those cancer pathways. And that's, you know, my scientific question and concern, what I've been observing, T cell suppression, your immune system keeps cancer in check. All of us have some atypical cells right now. Your immune system knocks them out. Um, interferon is critical for fighting off other viruses as well as for fighting off cancer, especially type one interferon. The spike protein suppresses that in our cells. The spike protein damages our, our mitochondria. It can get into the mitochondria and inhibit the breathing of your cell, the energy of your cell, the ATP. So your every cell in your body has these little factories making energy for you all day long. The spike protein impedes that. Great papers by Dr. Clough and Abramovich. So, and, and those are the tip of the iceberg. And then certainly microclotting, you know, can cause choking off of tissues and cancers do like uh, oxygen depleted environment. So there, and, and I could, and I won't get into the weeds on it. That could be another long, long lectures. But, but you're right. It's all these things added up into one that it's all of a sudden with what's new. Well, there's a new product that's never been used on humanity before that has plenty of plausible mechanisms, plenty of proven mechanisms. And yet the, the scientific questioning, the endeavor to say, hey, mm-hmm. there's a signal. We need to right. look into the signal. We need to fund this. Well, just for me, out of curiosity, what what is the what the tumors you've been seeing? What, what was it like a Burkitt's or something? What do you what have you been? Well, no, interestingly, and, and there is an increase of Epstein Barr virus both after COVID and after. And Burkitt's is driven by Epstein Barr virus. That's a B cell lymphoma that tends to be driven by Epstein Barr virus. And and interestingly, in about half of the long haul patients and COVID vaccine injured patients, they do have reactivated Epstein Barr virus. So I encourage clinicians whenever they have that fatigued patient post post vaccine or post COVID, check Epstein Barr virus titers to see if it's reactivated. Um, my first signal was in women's health. Um, I saw an uptick in endometrial cancers. That was the one that first concerned me. And then I do a lot of skin pathology, and so. Uh, melanoma in a lot younger patients. And what was fascinating, especially after shot two or three, was the activity of growth of the tumor. So we we measure how the cells are dividing and at what rate. And it, it was dividing at, these tumors were dividing at far higher rates. I've been doing this for 26 years. I've seen 500,000 patients in my career. You kind of know the patterns. And when you see something different, you're like, gosh, that is a lot of cell activity in this tumor compared to what I've been seeing. And it's in, in like Dr. Victory said, in younger cohorts. And, and that becomes a concern mm-hmm. as well. So again, I'm not throwing anyone under the bus, but this is an industry that has something new. And this, all of these things are the kind of things we should have done 
long before a rollout of something experimental on a large population. All right, so I keep throwing I, you I, off the blood clot. So back to the clots. No, no, no. no let's go to the clots. No, no, no. I, and I, I, I'm more freeform like this. So, I mean, I can get on stage and do a presentation, but we can jump a couple slides forward. Let's look at those clots because, you know, there's been some sensational videos. And unfortunately, I, I didn't have any editorial power and didn't know I was going to be in one. I'm like, oh, gosh, you know, here we are. And so I can right. dispel some of the controversy if I can. So, yeah, let's go ahead and jump a slide or two, Caleb. Um, here we are. So people say, oh, you know, these clots aren't real, you know, that's all made up, whatever, people are confabulating. These are from living patients. So these patients, fortunately, are still with us. So I have some surgical colleagues around the country that have seen an increase in their patients, thankfully done the scans, found them, and extracted them. So these thick fibrous clots are in vivo as well. These are in living patients. The interesting tube of blood on the right, this was a patient from my colleague, Dr. Burkhart in Germany, and she had three shots. Whenever it would get cold, her fingers would start to hurt, kind of a Renaud's phenomenon. They took a tube of blood, set it on the counter, and little fibrils started to form. They spun it down, and the material within this spun down big nugget there um, is the same as what we're seeing in the clots. So we'll go a slide forward. And this is what it looks like. It, it looks like just this pink amorphous material. Well, that's fibrin, it's reticulin, it's, it's a bunch of amino acids, but more importantly, there, there's a material that the body doesn't break down very easily called amyloid. And you may hear about amyloid in Alzheimer's disease and plaques in the neurons in the brain. That's, that's what we call a beta-pleated sheet amyloid. There are different types of amyloid, but the problem is the body doesn't easily break down amyloid. Our body can break down fibrin and clots and, and you'll form a clot after scraping your arm or knee or whatever, and eventually your body remodels that area. And because the, we have enzymes that say, hey, you know, there's a clot, it's in the way, let's, let's remold it, put some new vessels in, you know, all done, good to go. However, this type of proteinaceous material doesn't get broken down easily by the body. I don't want to scare everybody and say, gosh, everybody that has, you know, the shot is going to have this. No, no. The good news is most people are fine. However, from a scientific point of view, you can't find what you don't look for. So early on, the agencies and Fauci encouraged people not to do autopsies. So you're not going to find if you're not looking. The morticians that started seeing these, they were getting, when, when a, a body comes in and they have to preserve it, they, they you know, cannulate large vessels, they put their needles in large vessels, they started getting back pressure that they hadn't experienced before. And there are one or two that have spoken out, but I know of about another 50 that are seeing the same, but again, want to keep their jobs. So they don't say anything. But when we look at these clots under the microscope, this is what we see. We'll go another slide forward here. Uh, now, this is interesting. So here's autopsy tissue. This is a thicker clot within a, a larger lung vessel. And all that brown in the middle, guess what's in the middle of that? Spike protein. And again, it's binding to those little receptors we talked about. And Dr. Pretorius did a brilliant study where, the one from Dr. Reza Pretorius, South Africa, where she showed that you can take the platelets out of the blood and put the spike protein in, and it will cause proteins to clump together in the absence of platelets. So this is really unusual in, in clotting mechanisms. I ran one of the busy, busiest uh, clotting clinics in the world at the Mayo Clinic for a long time, and just understanding all the, the factors that go in to form a clot, to see something like this in a protein that will do this 
in the absence of other things that are usually necessary for a clot is very unusual and again, concerning. Do I want to alarm people? No, I don't want to alarm people. Do I want people to be aware? And do I want my colleagues around the world to study this? Absolutely. So we'll go on to the next one here. Uh, this is just an example of the post-mortem clots. And yes, they're long and they, um, they're very fibrous. And that fibrous aspect of, there's no you know, nano chips and wires and all this crazy stuff you hear on the internet. I think that's just all tinfoil scaremongering. But what there is, is unusual amounts of collected proteins. There are unusual combinations of proteins that make these very difficult for the body to dissolve. We'll go on to and the next correct one. Me, correct me if I'm wrong. Let me just uh, uh, if we keep referring to these or people have referred to them as blood clots, these, you know, foot long or yard long, quote, mm -hmm. blood clots. You're talking about what's in there. Fibrin is, you know, kind of amyloid. But if I'm correct, they also are devoid of those things that we normally associate with blood, meaning there isn't hemoglobin or potassium or iron, the normal components of blood. Uh, they have a very different texture. If you, if, you, if you roll a blood clot around in your fingers, it essentially will dissolve. If you roll these around, they, they have a very different texture, but they are devoid of typical blood components, correct? And let me um, let me is, pile on a question on the heels of that. And are they the same in, in post mortem as in somebody who's you're, you're finding these in a living person? Uh, no. And I've done about six hundred autopsies early in my, earlier in my career. Spent a month in a medical examiner's office as well. Post mortem clots tend to be like a thick red jelly. And like right. Kelly was saying, you can squeeze them, you can kind of roll them around, and just break them apart. That's the uniqueness of this. These are these are like rubber bands. And, and I do kind of want to dispel a, a little bit of what you mentioned, Kelly, because they do house uh, normal blood elements. So they do have the okay. fibrin you would see in the blood. You do have some of the okay. normal clotting proteins. It will entrap red blood cells. It will entrap white blood cells. So those elements are within it. The unusual aspect is the rest of the composition of this long fibrous clot is that amyloid-like material with some mixed uh, sugars, glycoproteins mixed in. So it's the, it's the difference of being used to seeing a normal clot, having that part of it there, but this addition to it that makes it, you know, elastic and, 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 and odd. Mm -hmm. and, can, and can I ask one apart. other quick, another, another sure. quick question on the heels of this? I, I've had this very distinct instinct all the way along as we've learned about this illness, that there's a significant endothelial pathology of some type, both with right. the vaccine reactions and with COVID. I, I've, I've almost, mm -hmm. you know, it, all the microvascular stuff in the brain, I'm convinced is really something happening in the endothelium triggering clot. Is there anything about what you're describing with the vaccine that sort of theory, either evidence for or theoretically in your own mind that fits with that theory? I think that COVID itself and injury from uh, the spike protein from the injections is one and the same pathology. I think you're absolutely right. I think the primary disease is a, is a system-wide endotheliitis. And that means inflammation of the lining of the blood vessels. And there sense. are so much binding to that ACE2, to that CD147 that we mentioned earlier. And then these induce 
yes, inflammatory pathways, cytokine pathways, but also, and most critically in, in you know, this aspect of the conversation, the clotting pathways, be it microclotting, you know, the acute blindness and retinitis that we see, acute neurologic change and cognitive brain fog, either from the virus or post-vaccine, uh, COVID fingers and toes before the shots ever came out. And we still see that clotting pattern in many um, post-vaccine injuries as well. So it's that micro-clotting that I think is the principal thing that we need to address in medicine. Now, there, there's one thing that I've been a, a big advocate for, and that's a uh, derived from uh, fermented soy, natokinase, which is an enzyme that breaks down fibrin. Um, and if you look at, again, parts of the world like northern Japan, they don't die from heart disease and strokes. And they right. eat a lot of this fermented soy in their diet. Right. And, and I'm not, again, I'm not your doctor. I'm just saying an interesting observation is to look at this. It's known as a fibrinolytic enzyme that's naturally available both in food and as a supplement. And I've had colleagues who've ended up with clots after long travels and put on Eliquis and other drugs. And I said, have you tried natokinase? And a day or two later, gosh, their clot is dissolved. So right. there are enzymatic mechanisms to start breaking these clots down before all these other amyloid proteins can start to piggyback on and compound and get bigger and bigger and bigger. So I agree with Drew a thousand percent. COVID is a clotting disease. COVID is an endothelial disease. Yes, there are all these other phenomenally bizarre things that the spike protein does, and I could give hours lectures, I won't. But but yeah, you're right. That is where it all begins. I think you're a thousand percent right. Increased intake of nanokinase in uh, Japan is one of the theories for why they have a uh, they enjoy a very very low rate of both Parkinson's and Alzheimer's because of the amyloid component. Hmm. So uh, it's hmm. an interesting theory topic topic for yet another show. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so back to. So back to the clots. I need to yeah. back to clots. Yeah, back to the clots. Yeah, the clot thickens. Here we go. <laughs> um, so in this picture down on, down on the right, you can see. So those are some slides from my lab, and and you can see some of that more pale blue area down below there. That's some of more of the glycoproteins, the thicker pink bands. That's the the fibrin and the amyloid. But but up above, you can see parts of it that are speckled mm -hmm. with blue. That's why I just wanted to point out there are normal blood elements trapped within these. So part of them look like a okay. traditional clot, really the add-on that makes them look weird. So we'll, we'll jump ahead to the next one real quick. And this uh, here's my biggest concern. So this is what we were talking about earlier. And to Dr. Drew's point of this spike protein causing inflammation uh, chronically within vessels, my, my concern is the persistence of this spike protein. So this was a brilliant study uh, by my uh, colleague, Dr. Rolkin at Stanford in the journal Cell. And she took a uh, lymph node biopsy after the injection and all the pink that you can see on that first left column, that's mRNA. So at week one, there's still mRNA because of this synthetic pseudouridine that's substituted into the sequence instead of our natural uridine. Our, our body normally breaks down RNA in a couple of hours or a day or two, depending on what protein our body's trying to make for our normal bodily function. So what, what was advertised by the agencies is, oh, mRNA breaks down. This is safe. You don't need to worry about it. No problem. However, when you put a synthetic molecule in these little beads of pearls, these nucleotides, it doesn't break down. And this study proved it. And so at week one, all the pink in that first column, mRNA still present in lymph nodes. At week two, at week three, at week five, at week eight. 
And then the next column over in the lymph nodes at week one, certainly spike is being produced, but guess what? In that same sequence of weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. Now you see less, that's a good sign. You know, is the amount going down? It appears so. And is this happening in everybody? No, but in a set percentage in this study set, their body was still making spike protein, but more importantly, that mRNA was still persisting within their lymph node cells two months later. Now, here's an important point to add on. This study stopped at 60 days so they could go to publication. What happened at 90 days and 120 days? Some of the autopsy uh, series I've looked at with my colleagues in Germany show that spike protein being deposited in, in high amounts 120 plus days after their, the patient's last injection prior to their demise. So again, in science, that precautionary principle, what's the risk benefit? Are we doing something? Do we know the long-term outcomes? We need to be studying these things in science. And I will take all the slings and arrows any colleague wants to throw at me. I, I am I'm an observer and a reporter. That's what a pathologist does. We observe, we report. And the cells don't lie. And I like to say that the cells don't lie. What is there and being expressed is there and being expressed. I mean, this isn't brand new science in terms of identifying these things. We've been doing this for decades in the laboratory. And so when you look at these patterns, now this is informed consent. This is giving the public informed consent a bit too late, but these are the kind of things that our agencies should have done beforehand and said, oh, by the way, if we give you this mRNA for at least two to four months, it's going to be in your body. And so is that spike protein. That would be informed consent. And by the way, it causes an inflammation of the blood vessels of the body, and it can cause an inflammation of the heart, and it can cause inflammation of the brain and any and every organ in your body. So that would have been informed consent because were these things known in some of these laboratories beforehand? Well, if you add up the history of lipid nanoparticles and look at the toxicity of that, they knew. If you look at the failure of mRNA products prior to this, they knew. There's a long history and just putting the pieces of science together, I don't have to go on any tinfoil pathway of any sort. I can take all the published literature and say, here's how we knew it was a, it was a bad idea. Here's how we knew. Here's how we knew. Here's how we knew. This is how science is done. You make observations. You obviously hypothesize things as well. Test, try, either succeed or fail. Go back to the bench and try it again. But these things were known well before these products were put together. And now we're seeing, unfortunately, and I'm not here to criticize. I, I, I'm here as an advocate for truth and science. And uh, if you got one shot, I'm not criticizing you. Don't get another. If you got two, don't get a third. If you got three, don't get a fourth. Um, because number one, the coronavirus of any sort will always mutate ahead of what we try to do. And number two, based on what we're seeing scientifically in the laboratory now, the risk benefit ratio is all on the risk side. So that's the science behind it. And, and again, you know, we can go into the immune pathways of the immune system attacking self. That's another huge problem is, is autoimmune disease and the autoimmune antibodies that the body's forming against our myelin, against our platelets, against tissues in our body. Right. There's so many mechanisms of harm of this spike, but you know, that's kind of just, that's clotting in a nutshell and you know, a couple other scary things, but happy to go down any other pathway, well, Kelly. Sorry, well, I, well, I, I get well, excited about no, nerdy science. No, no, no worries. And I would submit to you, by the way, 
that not only did they not give informed consent, they actually we were told falsehoods. We were told, number one, that the injections would stay in the deltoid muscle when they knew that that was not the case. We were told, number two, uh, that it would be eliminated from your body very, very quickly. Still, as of today, it appears on the CDC website that the mRNA gets eliminated within a matter of days. They know that that's a falsehood, and they always did. And we were told that it couldn't be incorporated into your DNA. And we have some pretty compelling, at least in vitro studies, um, that show that it, in fact, can be reverse transcribed or is reverse transcribed into cells. Uh, I am not anti-vaccine. What I am is pro-safety and pro-data. And these vaccines were rolled out far too quickly with a paucity of safety data. Uh, and I'm with you. They should be pulled at this point. I think we've covered, at least at a high level, the issues about the clots and how they might, these uh, vaccines might be associated with causing myocarditis. You showed those slides of the heart muscle. And even we've talked about the potential relationship to increases in cancers because of the way the spikes bind to those different receptors. One thing I'd like to also ask, if you can see a connection, we know, and Drew and I have done shows reporting on the somewhat alarming decreases in birth rates that are being seen around the country and increases in fertility issues. Is there something, how in your mind from a pathologist's purview, do you tie together what you're seeing under the microscope with what is happening in the reality with fertility and birth rates? Well, if you go back to the biodistribution studies that were FOIA'd out of Japan, and Dr. Mm -hmm. Bridal, I was on a call with him last night, that lipid nanoparticle, like I said, goes anywhere and everywhere in the body. Well, it likes to hone to fatty tissues, and the ovary has a lot of lipid in the cells. In those studies, that lipid nanoparticle was concentrating in the ovary at higher rates than other parts of the body. When they stopped that distribution study, the inflection curve when they stopped it at 48 hours was going still going up and unfortunately they stopped at 48 hours sacrificed the mice and then looked for the distribution if you look at that study they cheated on that a little bit too because they combined the male data and the female data the the accumulation in the female was a lot higher in a lot of the organs than in the male we know that in male sperm the spike protein post-vaccine study out of Israel showed a decrease in sperm count as well as decrease in sperm motility for six months. In the female body, the fallopian tube, the ovaries, the eggs themselves, going back to Dr. Drew's, Drew's question, are replete with ACE2 receptors. That spike protein will hone to that ACE2 receptor that your body is making post-vaccine. And wherever that spike lands, it is an inflammation-inducing protein. And so inflammation in the ovary can, number one, kill off eggs, and number two, inhibit the ability for that egg to be robust in terms of implantation, in terms of getting to uh, full ovulation and or release. And we've seen, uh, and, and I don't think it's just ovary. Here's my other concern, and, and it goes back to the, the brain question and, and where can this spike go? Where can this lipid nanoparticle go? Our endocrine system is is feedback, and so we have hormones here in our in our gonads, and we have hormones in our brain, and they say, okay, release the follicle, okay, start making a, a, a stimulating a new egg to develop back and forth. So if we have inhibition in neurons for normal hormonal cycles, 
And we also have inhibition within the ovary itself where the spike protein is binding, where we know the lipid nanoparticle preferentially concentrates. Then if you look at the, I mean, the drastic decrease in fertility, and I like to joke, hey, look, we should have more babies than ever. If people were locked up, there's something <laughs> they should have been doing. So, right. <laughs> so I, so it, it is a concern, and uh, the European data, they're down on average 10%, and if you look mm -hmm. across the board, about 110,000 births that are down. Um, Taiwan data, same thing, Sweden, yeah, Netherlands, yeah. so many countries. Yeah, and Taiwan, I think, is... Plausible mechanism. Now, here's the other sad thing, and I won't... I'm going to grab this from under the desk. This is starting to arrive. These are placentas. These are placentas coming from obstetric colleagues around the country. These placentas are the wrong size for the gestational age. These placentas right. are calcified. These placentas have spike protein in them. These placentas right. have antibodies in them. These placentas have induced excess inflammation in them. This particular one is from a nurse, hospital, eight months pregnant, required to get the jab to keep her job very shortly thereafter, unfortunately, intrauterine fetal demise. I know you guys talked to a couple other colleagues that went over that kind of data. Mm -hmm. So certainly the data paints a picture, but more importantly, the pathology mechanisms are already identified and just more studies need to be done from these. So what I encourage is any medical colleague anywhere in the world, find your pathologist, say, Here's the list of stains, start ordering them, start looking at these things in the tissue of the deceased, start looking at these in those fetuses that don't make it to full term, start looking at those placentas, start taking your surgical specimens that are in unusual cases of multiply jabbed individuals with unusual conditions and start looking for what would be causing it. Obviously, I have an inkling based on what I've shared. But yes, I think you're right. There are, are highly mechanistic, plausible mechanisms, great literature on this already. And, and I, I like to quote Mark Twain often when, I, when I'm, I don't want to throw my, my colleagues under the bus in medicine, but Mark Twain said, the man who does not read has no advantage over the man who cannot read. And I think this is the problem we're having with kind of this group think of safe and effective, safe and effective, no problems. My counter argument is, but look, read, it's here. I mean, it's hiding in plain sight. Don't just believe a narrative. Like Rochelle Walensky said, she was getting her vaccine safety information, information safety from CNN and, and just chuckled about it. I'm like, good grief. I mean, these are people responsible for countless lives. And, and, and going to the, to back to, you know, certain data points, you know, those cancer signals, that's up to the CDC to be up to date and reporting those in real time. You know, you and I are hearing these signals of all sorts of things as we go to meetings from colleagues. I'm hearing from oncologists, interventional radiologists, radiologists, left and right of seeing these things in 20, 30, 40 year olds. And they're, they're alarmed. They're like, we're seeing it. Um, I, I got a call from a, an OB, I won't say in which state, because she is, you know, a tall blade of grass, but she said, is there a better system than bears? Because I am seeing leiomyosarcomas in the vaginal tract and in the uterus at rates I have never seen in my career. Yeah. And she's in a state, a state that's highly jabbed. So these are all signals. We need to do the science. Um, I'm a voice for scientific observation. 
Like I said, you can criticize me. That's fine. Bring better data, but do the science. I have a clinical question, well, clinical question, please? which is I seeing a lot of very rapid junctional rhythms in young males. I, I, I've been thinking that it was probably some un, unseen, you know, a subclinical myocarditis, but the anatomy is so specific. I mean, it's so weird to have these recurrent junctional rhythms. I mean, it's not strictly SVT, it's junctional. And is there anything right. about the endothelial supply and the blood supply to that node in your mind as you think about it that could could explain, you know, how the endotheliitis could explain the high junctional rhythms? Absolutely. And and that's again goes back to that CD147 receptor, the pericytes. So these little supporting cells that surround the smaller blood vessels, they're replete with that receptor. So wherever we find that receptor, and there was a good paper that came out just a week or two ago showing the preferential binding of S1 to that pericyte. Now we have pericytes in our in our capillaries in our brain as well. So I think there, there are two mechanisms there. One, it is concentrating the amount of spike in that pericyte, which allows it to transverse that wall into the surrounding tissues, yes. And number two, you also have portions of the brainstem responsible for rhythm in the right. sense of hearing. And so same thing, those pericytes in the brain, that CD147 receptor, that spike binding to those areas, now you have two potential mechanisms of action for these arrhythmias and, and SVTs, et cetera, to be happening. You have, you have and, uh, you nanoparticles know, concentrating in the hypothalamus uh, and yeah, other exactly. areas that may well be, be uh, affecting the, um, the, the rhythms. I know we're, we're up against, you know, coming toward the end, I have still two pages of things I want to talk <laughs> with you about. Um, so we'll have to make a, a date to do this again, just so you know. I, I the, think we um, should, by really the way. The, I, think that's, I think you're absolutely the, correct. I, I think Thank so you. too. The the way this show got started, um, Ryan, was really out of the repressive nature of this entire pandemic um, that Drew was seeing, and I certainly was a victim of it. This censorship, the uh, ridicule, deridement, the fact that uh, I was kicked off of every social media platform. And you are quite right that prior to this, uh, in my thirty plus years as a practicing physician robust, vigorous debate was a cornerstone of medicine. It's what we, you know, we relied upon. And we would say the same thing. If you want to argue with me that I've misinterpreted the data, that I underestimated or overestimated the risk, that you've got a better study, bring it on. Um, but, you know, let's have that discussion and let's really have it out. Respectful debate, but let's have that debate. Um, I have been so appreciative of this platform and the ability for me to invite uh, people like yourself and my colleagues of mine into this uh, platform to have these open discussions that otherwise people really can't access. They sure as heck aren't getting it on the mainstream media and they aren't getting it out there uh, in their average Google search. So uh, I appreciate you you bringing this, uh, your experience, your slides, your, your uh, take on all of this to the table and being willing as I said, fearless as you are uh, to bring it out there. And so thanks very much. We, we need to make a date to, for part two, Ryan Cole, part two. We do. Yeah. Yeah, I we would, do. I, would I, be I agree. And 
I just want to say thank you to you both because it, it's not about ego. This, this is science on behalf of our fellow human beings and that yes. critical oath that we all took to, you know, primum non nocere, first do no harm. And that's really why I've done what you guys have done, just trying to get information out to help people. And so I'm grateful for this opportunity. And Dr. Cole, can people find more of your material at the rcolemd.com? Is that where like your slides yes. and things are? People are on the on the restream are asking, where do I go? I want to see this again. So they can find that information yes. there. Yes. Kelly, Terrific. any uh, other finished final no, thoughts? No, I just, oh, as, I want, as, I, as, I, as I... Oh, go, go, go ahead. ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, I want no, to answer go ahead, Dr. Go. Drew's question about SVT, because the other thing too, I forgot to mention, yeah. that amyloid that we're seeing in vessels and some of those clots, that amyloid is also depositing between tissues and some organs and some autopsies. So that's that a could, third I wonder mechanism. if that's, to keep an eye out on the, on the, on the, literally the, the AV node, right? Because we're mm -hmm. seeing these, these are not the usual SVTs. These are AV nodal, right. high, extremely Correct. rapid, that respond to ablation, but Jesus, you're ablating the AV. No, it's just a mess. And it's very specific. Yeah, I've never, so, I've seen, have never seen this in young people before. It's usually people with advanced ischemic disease. This is what's left of a 17 year old. So if an autopsy is being done and it should be done, I mean, my call to action for the medical profession is sudden deaths, make sure the autopsies are done, include the node. But if you're going to do an autopsy, then do the adequate markers for this right. protein that we can identify, do the adequate stains for amyloid. You know, what a great question, because we know the mechanisms, the both in the literature and and under the microscope. So let's do it. Let's let's a call to action to our colleagues. Be willing to be the scientist again. Be willing to help your patients. Be they alive. Let the dead speak. Let let's honor them with showing so others can learn and others cannot be harmed. So thank you guys so much. I super appreciate it. Kelly, last words. Oh, that's, uh, yeah, I was just going to say, we we know and I've been reporting from the very, very beginning on the increases in cancers, increases in autoimmune diseases, increases in fertility issues, increase in cardiac issues. But what you are presenting here is the proof that these are related to these spike proteins and the spike proteins from the vaccines versus from native virus. And that's a very, very important thing. You are correct. You will not find what you don't look for. We are obligated to look for this and we're obligated to report on what you're finding. So thanks again. And we will do this, uh, they said, for Dr. Ryan Cole, part two, date to be determined. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Victory. And we have some very great guests coming up. We have uh, the Florida Attorney, uh, Surgeon General coming up, Dr. Lapidot. Surgeon General, yes. Right? Yes. Yep. Yes, Dr. Is, Joe Dr. Lapidot. Uh, Lapidot coming next Wednesday. And then uh, David Weissman, who uh, who Dr. Cole just referenced. We have uh, Dr. Weissman joining us. And uh, that date, I think, is the 14th of December. And then uh, we're getting Dr. Uh, Bridal scheduled as well, Byron Bridal, uh, folks who have worked closely with um, me and with Dr. Cole. So that's terrific. And we will get Dr. Cole back on the schedule again for a part two. It'll be particularly uh, meaningful having already then interviewed Dr. Weissman and getting his input. Yes. And we'll probably have more questions yeah. after that. So that'd be very interesting. So Kelly, as always, thank you. I'm so glad to be back. Late to see you. And uh, to everyone else out there, we appreciate you being here. We Thanks, appreciate Kelly. We appreciate you on the restream. Thanks. We've been watching Welcome you. Welcome back. Way. 
Thank you. I've been trying to keep an eye on what you Make guys sure are saying. Make sure you retweet Drew's tweet for Kelly's reinstatement. Uh, yes. on oh, Twitter. please, yes. please do, because the most irritating thing of the entire, in addition to the insult of having been banned for speaking truth, uh, and I was really, the things I was kicked off for had nothing to do with my personal opinions. They were statements of fact, um, irrefutable fact, by the way. Um, but the, the most irritating thing is that there is uh, more than one sham fake account out there. This particular one you're showing right now somehow got a verified blue check. This person is impersonating <laughs> me, has stolen Eight my bucks. identity, is taking <laughs> is taking uh, credit for the work that I do for, for the different television well, shows it, I do and for it's shows not like you this speaking. one. So. She's yeah. a, she's a, Snip! It might be even a guy. She's a she's a tart. Okay, she's not. She doesn't even sound like you. She's not smart. She looks like uh, an uh, idiot. So uh, I I yeah, actually so followed her. Go, I know it's illegal. It's, it's yeah, it is illegal. But a lot a of people. It's yeah. practicing medicine without yeah. a license. Very serious legal problem. Yeah, very serious. Don't read yeah. the tweets. Just. Just retweet. Let's get her reinstated and retweeted. Right. Hopefully, and, uh, and hopefully we can get other doctors back on Twitter if they want to be on it or not. I would like you back. Thank and, you. Uh, we'll get you back. I would. Uh, I, I would. I, I thank you. I appreciate faith in it, Mr. Musk. All right, Kelly. Thank right, you so much. Thanks. And uh, I will be out yeah. the rest of the week. I've got to go to Austin. I'm um, gonna miss you. I'm, I'm going to miss you too. And Two then, days. And when we, I know it's weird. <laughs> and when we come back, uh, it's going to be the usual schedule: Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. As we said on Wednesday, to be Dr. these Florida Surgeon General. I have a tremendous respect for that You're guy. So excited! About I'm it. very excited about that one. So we very interested to talk to him. Well, we had quite a, a showing today on Rumble and YouTube and all the other platforms. We appreciate your viewership, and we try to make as much information and seems like the smarter the people are the bigger the crowd that, is that's so. a good sign i consider that a great sign it gives me gives me faith. i couldn't understand half of the stuff that he said but i kind of followed he, you can watch it again it's not it doesn't as though sound he, good. He, was, he was not using concepts that the average person could not understand you you may you may miss it because you're not familiar with it do watch it again it's it's pretty easily understood and susan people i watched the uh, rumble rants very carefully today and people they were, were really appropriate they were appropriate they we were behaving a, themselves we and an they were imposter. good very interesting comments too they didn't so. say i had a stretched face or anything like that <laughs> was that what they were saying <laughs> that's okay oh my god i don't I all right don't do anything well right. thank you guys it's the genucel it, it's, <laughs> thank you on the restream and uh, i will see you all next tuesday we'll see you then three o'clock Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor, and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800 273 8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com slash help. Yeah.